0: You're listening to an episode of the C-19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C-19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C-19.
1: Hello, this is the C-19 Podcast. My name is Mark Sussman, and I am here today with Tess Chakalakal. Tess, you are working on, among other things, a biography of Charles W. Chestnut. So first, if I could ask, what drew you to Chestnut's work?
2: Well, thanks for having me, Mark. It's exciting to be part of this podcast. Charles Chestnut, as of course you know, but maybe not all of our listeners know, was born in 1858 and died in 1932. He spent most of his career in Cleveland, Ohio, which already makes him a bit of an anomaly. But of course, Paul Lawrence Dunbar would be the other African-American writer who's writing at this time. And I often associate both those writers, as many people do, with William Dean Howells, who is the other, other uh, realist writer who's writing in the period. Um, And they all, uh, though Dunbar and Chestnut weren't friends, um, they did know of one another. I first started working on Chestnut when I was completing my first book, Novel Bondage. And I became sort of obsessed with his collection of short stories, The Wife of His Youth and Other Stories of the Color Line, published in 1899. And that title story first appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, and it probably has gotten more attention than any of his other short stories, even and including his Conjure Woman stories, which were also hugely popular during their time and also appeared Some of those stories appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, but The Wife of His Youth was such a strange story and could be read in a number of different ways. At that time, I was thinking about the convention of slave marriage, and although my book ended with Chestnut, just given the chronology, it started with William Wells Brown and Lydia Maria Child and ends with Chestnut, the book really starts with Chestnut, because he's, the, the way he set up the problematic of slave marriage with all of its tensions and ironies um, is what brought me to the project in the first place. First of all, what is a slave marriage? How do we conceptualize such a thing? And in this short story where you have, it's in the, it's in the post-Reconstruction period, and there you have a former slave uh, who's now made good for himself and he has to make this decision between his old slave wife and becoming engaged to a new free wife and in the end he chooses and the choice is very important his old slave life slash wife and chestnut doesn't really come down on one side or the other but you can tell the author, the narrator, is just as torn up as is the character.
1: So I, d- I want to interrupt real quick because you're getting into this issue of the author, narrator, and what side the story comes down on. So could you maybe talk through a little bit you know, who Chestnut was and what made him the kind of person who was able to write this kind of ambiguous story about something that you would think was not that ambiguous which is slavery and and slave marriage. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, that's the key term really, isn't it, when it comes to chestnut is the ambiguity of his position. And this is because he was, before the Civil War, what was called a free black or a free colored person. Though he was born in Cleveland, Ohio, both of his parents, John Andrew Jackson and uh, Anne-Marie Sampson, were um, free blacks. And chestnut not he didn't make a big deal about this, but he often said that on both sides they were free. And, and, and that's a sort of unusual mid-19th century African-American position to occupy. It is of course a minority uh, position um, which he understood. After the Civil War, his family returned to North Carolina, Fayetteville, where both his parents uh, were born. And in fact, John Andrew Jackson, his father's father, Chestnut's grandfather, was a white former slave owner, Waddell Cade, and um, his mother, when he was 13, died. So we actually have very little information about her, But from what we do know, his his maternal grandmother, Chloe Sampson, was a free black who um, had a relationship with a former white slave owner and gave birth to her daughter. She had multiple children after that as well. So this position he occupied, he he called it, he had a ragged family tree. But he could trace as far back as his grandparents which is what categorized him before the Civil War as a free black, and it was a title that he wore even after the Civil War. So this, you might call it an in-between position. Um, He was very light-skinned, as were many African-Americans, of course, uh, and still are. Um, But that position at the time made him you might say, sympathetic to both the white position and the black position when it came to the intimacies that developed during and after slavery.
1: One of the things that distinguishes Chestnut, uh, at least in my understanding, is not just where he came from, but the path he chose for himself. And the kind of life that he tried to make for himself uh, from basically the time that he was an an adolescent, uh, I mean, for the rest of his life. So could you talk a little bit about the sort of path that he took and what and maybe just the sort of broad outlines of his life?
2: So Chestnut um, went to school in Fayetteville And uh, one of the most important people in his life at this time, uh, after his mother died, was Robert Harris, who was the principal of the Free Colored School that Chesson attended and graduated from, uh, the Howard School, named after O. Howard. From there, he once his mother died, he became an educator himself, and this was partly because of Robert Harris's influence. And he was a very good teacher, so good, in fact, that he was then promoted to the, princi- uh, to the principal's position uh, after Robert Harris's death. And though he really loved the teaching profession, it wasn't enough for him. He couldn't make enough money at it, and he was always, as we learn from his journals, wanting to do something else. Uh, He got married at the age of 20 had his first child at 21 and he wanted to provide for them. And the teacher salary, just he felt, was not enough. His wife, Susan Perry, later Susan Chestnut, was also a teacher, but as soon as she married Chestnut, she quit her job. So he began very actively looking for other things to do. And one of the first things he thought of doing, of course, was becoming an author, but he also toyed with the idea of becoming a doctor or a lawyer. And uh, he eventually taught himself, as you know, uh, shorthand in the Pittman style. He also taught himself Greek and Latin, uh, both of which these languages were important as a school teacher for him as well. So he's trying his hat on in a number of different careers. And eventually the family relocates to Cleveland, Ohio. He now has three children. Um, His fourth is born in Cleveland and um, He passes the bar exam with very high marks. Uh, He starts a career as a lawyer, but that doesn't pan out. So then he takes up stenography as a full-time profession. And all the while, while he's trying on these different professions, he's writing his own short stories. Now, he's been writing short stories since he was 13. So this is always a part of his life, though it's not always the central part of his life. It becomes the central part of his life in 1898, 1899, when he becomes a success. And his stories are published by the Atlantic Monthly, um, and in other places he begins a relationship, a long friendship with Walter Heinz Page, his editor, and that is when his career as a novelist and short story writer take off. But then he returns to stenography when a decline occurs, though he continues to write.
1: Now, this is sort of remarkable, um, not just for the sort of varied life he's living, but, I mean, could you talk about the term, I mean, he is the first African-American writer to publish fiction in the Atlantic Monthly. That's a huge deal. Can you sort of give us some sense as to what that meant at the time?
2: Well, I mean, what it meant was that he was now a major American writer. And though he never um, hid the fact that he was African-American, the most important thing for Chestnut was to write, to write fiction that could be read by everybody. And unlike other writers at the time, like Sutton Griggs and Pauline Hopkins, as you know, who are publishing in the African-American press, what was known as the Colored Press at the time, Chestnut wants to start with mainstream presses. He's writing not just, I mean, he's submitting to family fiction, to um, like Dunbar, Lippincott's Monthly. Um, He wants to be a mainstream American writer, writing with the current of the time. And one thing that's been very surprising for me about Chestnut, it's generally believed that Chestnut was this kind of loner figure. Um, who who wrote alone in his library at, at, late at night after a long day of work at his office. But chestnut was just an incredibly social guy and his relationships with Booker T. Washington, Albion Terje, uh, George Washington Cable, and Walter Hines Page are central to his, not just his development as a writer but his influence as a writer. So Publishing the Atlantic Monthly made him a major American writer Um, and that needs to be understood as part of what I would call a movement in American literature that some have called realism after William Dean Howells, but it's also a movement to circulate American literature and to establish almost a new definition of what constitutes the United States of America after Reconstruction.
1: I mean, it's funny, when you talk about realism, we kind of think about it, I think we tend to think about it as really the establishment of what will become American literature as something that's recognized by the rest of the world, right? Prior Mm -hmm. to that, you've got debates about whether american literature is even a thing you know like why would you study american literature um but realism is really a part of that story and i think that even today you know we when we think of um it well if you think about the kind of books that win awards and if you think about the kind of books that Still are quote unquote literary but become big sellers by and large, they like tend to be, for lack of a better term, realist works. I mean, mm-hmm. franzen is like the figure that you would mm-hmm. probably think of most. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and within the academy, you know, when we study realism, when we study its origins, there are these set of figures that we associate them with, right? Henry James, to a greater or lesser extent, although I think that. Of course, there's something more complicated or, or weird going on there. William Dean Howell's, mm-hmm. of course. But mm-hmm. Chestnut's been kind of like written out of that story. Um, how does that happen? How does someone who is there on the ground floor, who is promoted by William Dean Howell, as like the realist, how does he end up just kind of disappearing from the story about realism in America?
2: That's a great question, Mark, and the only answer I can come up with is that in order to make Chestnut an African-American writer, as has been done, and you know, was happening, he had to leave the circle of American realism because in a way he couldn't occupy a position in both. Just like as a light-skinned black man, he couldn't occupy a position in both. You had to choose. So we can see this gen- problem of genre as almost paralleling the problem of race. There are distinct categories into which literature must fit. There's realism and there's African-American literature and you couldn't occupy a position in both. But Chestnut, contrary to several critics who have argued otherwise, was a realist. Sure, there was a mixture of romance in it, but of course, look at James, look at Howells, look at all the great realist writers. They're not just writing flat realist fiction without some allusions to other forms, but certainly the commitment to a certain kind of writing to presenting characters of a certain cast is evident throughout Chestnut's literary oeuvre both those works which were published in his lifetime and those published after.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that as our as sort of conceptions of what realism was and what it meant and what it did um change right there is a way in which they have been more accommodating to including chestnut in them right but there's a way in which i think there's always been this essential resistance and part of that is because i think like you know chestnut is writing these stories that um, some of them involved dialect, and there's always look at
2: been, Twain. Yeah, right, totally. <laughs> I mean, Twain has never been cast off from the realist circle, despite the dialect and the loopiness of some, his, of, some of his his writings. You know, and I, all I, like, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to what I said earlier. It really has to do with the racial identities of the authors themselves. I mean, I mean, for the most part,
1: right? So. In doing this work on on Chestnut, um, in writing this biography of Chestnut, it seems like you're trying to um, help us rethink what he was um, in his time and in our time. So can you maybe talk about the process of like, how did this project come about? What made you think that that it was time to do it?
2: Right. And, and just, just to kind of reframe the question, instead of thinking about what he was, I really want to think about who Chestnut was. And I think w- one thing I'm trying to do in the biography is to get away, as Chestnut himself had struggled his whole life with, is to get away from the racial categories which so constrained his everyday life, obviously, but also reading the fiction as well. And um, th- that for me is kind of paramount. Now in terms of how I came to it, I was actually asked by a historian, John David Smith, to um, write for hi- a series that he was um, editing on African-American lives um, for Roman and Littlefield, and they asked me what I thought about biography. And frankly, I hadn't thought a lot about biography, but I did say if there was any life of an African-American writer I would like to know more about, it's Charles Chestnut. Because all we know about Chestnut, um, we know from his daughter, Helen Chestnut, who wrote the first biography of her father in um, the 1950s, the early 1950s, And then since then, there have been sort of literary appraisals, the literary career of Charles Chestnut by William Andrews, of course, and Sylvia um, Render also wrote a short kind of life of Charles Chestnut, a summary kind of life of Charles Chestnut. But they really confined themselves to his life as an author. But to know who Charles Chestnut was, it's important for us to understand him as an educator, as a stenographer, as a lawyer, as a father, as a husband. He occupied really multiple roles in his Cleveland community as well. Chestnut was an incredibly social guy who had a lot of friends. And we don't know anything about these friendships that he formed. So when I wrote that chapter I I was talking about earlier on the wife of his youth, one of the most important aspects of analyzing that story was the long correspondence he had with Walter Hines Page, who like Chestnut was from North Carolina, but was from a white slave owning family. And yet they had this amazing friendship. That's, that's just amazing that they were able, and they met several times, um, and we know so little about the nature of this friendship and what it produced for both of them. Because Page was strongly influenced by Chestnut's writing, having written a novel of his own, first published anonymously in the Atlantic and then with his name, called The Southerner which was very much in the in the kind of um, vein of chestnut's own fiction so it's part of these kinds of exchanges and relationships and intimacies which he had and how they formed his fiction and his life and remember chestnut didn't write only fiction he also wrote essays on the race problem and his you know, quote unquote, solutions for the race problem uh, were pretty at once radical and conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested in understanding better the political philosophy of Chestnut that we can read not only in his nonfiction essays, but also in the fiction itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, his nonfiction is so interesting um, because it does have this kind of anti essentialist stand, where, Mm -hmm. I mean, his essay What is a White Man Mm -hmm. is so great, because he's basically just going through the sort of different definitions of what a quote-unquote Negro is, state by state, and Mm -hmm. being like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, how could you be in one place and be black, and then be in another place and not? What does it mean to be black, and what does it mean to be white in that sense? But his solutions to all these problems are, like, often, like, well, you know, people will intermarry and, like, then that's how you deal with it.
2: Well, in, in terms of the solution, I mean, the 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 way you put it is great, because what he does is it just shows you how nonsensical the definitions and categories for race are. And once that's done, I suppose the hope is that we too, as readers, recognize how how these categories make no sense, and maybe we'll want to get away from them. But of course... They're too powerful. This is what Mr. Ryder, for instance, learns in the short story, The Wife of His Youth, because those, those categories have a pull. But what Chestnut hopes is that eventually, he sees himself as still within that generation that is still pulled by the old story, the story of slavery, but he hopes within a generation that his children will not be bound by racial categories. And there's a real kind of hope for a better future for his children and their children that he imagines. And this is where we come back to your earlier question about what Chestnut means today, is there is something really, really kind of at once sad and hopeful about Chestnut's vision for the future, is that he had hoped that by now, 2017, we would still not be talking about race. But here we are in 2017, and it's all we can talk about. So it sort of shows us uh, that in some ways we may have made some progress, but that progress um, is curtailed uh, by our very insistence upon these categories that Chestnut had shown over a hundred years ago made no sense.
1: Right, I mean it's interesting because I think there's a certain sense in which he envisions a better future as meaning a society without race, right? Or in which race would become a category that was as socially meaningless as like hair color or something. But we don't think of what it means to have a progressive society as being a society without race. Um, that is, if if you're a, if you are a political progressive, that's not probably what you think.
2: But that's what's kind of cool about writing a biography right is because you can actually imagine i wonder what chestnut would think of this and i, I think as exactly as you said uh there would be a, a critique of that progressive politically progressive stance in its commitment to race which really undermines almost everything chestnut stood for
1: that's so interesting now, you've, you've noted that, like, so if you read Chestnut's fiction, you might be like, oh, well, the, there are a lot of these stories are about these kind of like weirdo outsiders who have no place. And yet Chestnut has a very comfortable, well-established place in society. Um, what are some of the more sort of surprising things that you found in in doing your research?
2: Um, Well, one is his relationship with, with women. This has been completely sort of ignored. You think that Chestnut just talked to men, which I guess he mostly did, but the partner of his firm, his stenography firm, was a woman and they actually had a very lively correspondence. He was a wonderful father to his three daughters and um, he really worried about their educations. He made sure, I mean, he he wasn't making a lot of money as a stenographer, but he made sure that all three of them had incredible college educations. Two of them went to Smith and one went to Case Western, what is now Case Western um, University. So he really did did not, I mean, I don't know how much he was a, a feminist or whatever, but he really did believe in the equality of people. Um, whether they be black or white or male or female. And I haven't found any skeletons in his closet. Um, You know, he did have um, sort of maybe not affairs with women before he married, but there's no evidence that he had any kind of affairs after he was married. The biggest surprise was his 1896 European journal in which he travels to Paris and London by steamer. And this journal is is very difficult to read. I've I've transcribed it. Um, But it gives you a sense of chestnut traveling around in the 1890s as a colored man and just going everywhere. People have written on how sharply dressed he was. He kept a record, for instance, of the socks he bought and the fountain pens he bought. And he was he was a kind of a not not a dilettante or a dandy, but he liked stuff. He had good taste. He had an incredible book collection. So these aspects of who he was gives us a better sense, I think. I mean, a surprising sense of of Chestnut as. Um, as, as, as a as a literary man, that that literature played a role in forming his very identity. That those those racial categories sort of interfered with.
1: I cannot wait to read Charles Chestnut's sock record. That sounds <laughs> right. so great. And yeah, may, stuff like that. Maybe has inspired me to start my own sock record. So your training is, as you've said, a literary scholar, right? And now you're you're writing biography, which is a different thing. It's got different goals. It has certain different sort of theoretical premises that you're operating from. And you're writing for a different kind of reader, I assume. What's that like, making the transition from one thing to another?
2: I mean, I'm still working on it, so I, I can't say I, I know exactly um, how to do this. Um, as as I said before, I didn't really have an intention of, of writing a biography of Charles Chestnut or anyone. I, I don't—it wasn't a genre in graduate school, for instance, that um, I— I wasn't even interested in because I, was in, I was, uh, went to school during the era of the death of the author and we didn't really have to read biographies and those who brought biography in seemed to be old fashioned in some way. So there's that, but there's also this other, this other problem that Chestnut isn't well known outside of the academy. I see that as a problem, that um, Chestnut hasn't had his due in some respects. Um, among a general reading public. So I am trying to write a biography about a figure which we have some archives for. There, He's one of the few early African American writers in which we have his papers and his, some of them, not complete, of course. Um, but putting this material together and creating a thread, a narrative, to understand um, who Chestnut was, but also to make that person as accessible as possible to a general public requires a different kind of writing than the kind that I've been trained to do to have articles published in scholarly journals. And this has been a real, I don't know, tension, struggle, um, to to write accessibly and the way I've tried to f- confront that challenge is to present this work as widely as possible in multiple settings not only in academic conferences but also in different venues at, at, at bookstores in libraries um, with different kinds of colleagues um, who are not only in English departments or African American studies departments, but also in history departments, women's studies departments. Um, I think that having as many eyes on the work as possible will certainly help me to write um, a story of a life um, from beginning to end in which you can see his wide influence and importance to American culture.
1: Now, you kind of, I mean, you sort of alluded to this in, in, in what you just said, right? But the idea that not so long ago, there was something kind of, I don't know, uh, vulgar about being too interested in a writer's biography if you were a literary critic, right? Now, obviously, that's not as true anymore. But I remember when I was writing my – and I had sort of told you this before – but when I was writing my dissertation and I was – reading Leon Adele's five volume biography of Henry James you know someone said like oh like you know in grad school for me that was like like you would never do that and if you did you would never tell anybody you did that because that was just not Mm -hmm. a very you know that was not what literary criticism was about um how is it possible to write a sort of scholarly literary biography that as you're talking about it feels cutting edge you know like what has made that possible like in terms of the methodological changes in the field the sort of changes and especially and especially one in towards a popular audience right where people are Mm -hmm. excited by that prospect not necessarily and they're not they don't look down on it
2: Mm-hmm. I, I guess there's there's two different um, aspects of, of that question. One is how how do we use the life of the author to interpret the literature, um, and it seems that that's important um, to. To literary critics, that that would be an important question, right? Like how are the the connections between, say, Chestnut and John Walden, or Warwick, in uh, House Behind the Cedars? But I don't think it gets us very far, ultimately. And I think this was one of the good um, consequences of that death of the author stuff, deconstruction, whatever, post-Drochphalist repudiation of literary biography, is you don't want to use too much of the biography to interpret the meaning of the text. I, I, I think that there's, there's something fruitful in that conversation. But at the same time, the author's life helps us to understand the place of literature in a wider world. And I guess, I mean, I, I mean this is done, you mentioned Henry James, and if we didn't have Henry James's biography, it seems to me that we wouldn't have a Henry James. And it could be be Edel's biography, but even if you read something like Colm uh, Tobin's um, fictionalized biography, The Master of Henry James, so much of that fiction is based on the actual biography of Henry James that gives us a kind of figure, a literary figure who's really larger than life in his travels and his relationships and how he's navigating the world. And it's really the perspective of that biographical story of Henry James that we understand that Henry James was an American figure who was historical, wrote a bunch of books and actually changed the story of America, perhaps, you know? I mean, that's that's sort of, and I actually have that um, grandiose acclaim of Chestnut. That here was this small town guy living in Fayetteville, North Carolina, who taught himself Greek and Latin and shorthand and went out and published works in the Atlanta monthly Atlantic Monthly and then wrote and published five books of his own with the most major press in America? How'd he do it? And not to not to imitate him, but what kind of Hutzpah did that take to do that? And what drove him? What what were the passions that drove him to do that? Why did he think it was important? Now, the general answer from a lot of the critics of Chestnut have been because he wanted to make money. I mean, sure, that was definitely a part of it. And then others will say, well, it was because he had more social purpose um, intentions to participate in this conversation about the race problem. I think it was something in the in the middle of that. You know, Chestnut had a certain view of what America could be now that slavery was abolished, that these racial categories needed actually to be abolished. And he had, a, he had such a deep commitment to the Republican ideals of America that he wanted to write books um, that celebrated or imagined um, such a nation. And and it's those kinds of grandiose ideas that that could seem that he was immodest or um, maybe vain, but he actually did do it. He actually did write and publish these books and he had an influence on these people. He actually attempted to live a life without being hemmed in by race. And not a lot of us can do that. In fact, it seems at this moment to be impossible. So what does that look like? I think the story of Chestnut's life helps us to imagine, to see what a life without race um, could look, could be.
1: That's fascinating. And I think that is also uh, a sort of good place for us to, to stop. Um, test I know I am uh, awaiting uh, this work with bated breath and I'm sure that some uh, many of our listeners uh, are now as well um, so thanks for joining us
0: thanks for
2: the opportunity
0: thank you for listening to the C19 podcast Enjoyed this episode have thoughts use the hashtag C19podcast or get in touch with us at C19podcast at gmail.com Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.